Well, good morning. If you got your Bibles, turn with me to John chapter 2. And believe it or not, we're going to look at a whole chapter today. It took us a long time to do one chapter to start with. I do believe, and I think we'll see as we go, the way John intended us to read this this morning was to look at both signs together. And so that's what we're going to do. And so just get comfortable. I'm not going to stand and and read, so take a breath. I'm not going to read all 25 verses now. Uh, We're going to look at them as we go this morning. John is already spotlighted several witnesses. He himself has given a witness, and he will continue to do that throughout the discourses that he, that he gives. Uh, but then he called John the Baptist, and, and last week we saw Jesus comes on the scene. And, and now he is going to give a witness to himself of who he is. Remember, many of those that were reading the Gospel of John for the first time after it was written was not Jews. And so we see John giving explanations and information, much like we do in a sermon where I have to help you understand the context because we're not there in that day. So understand, now that we've hit chapter 2, things are going to look and flow a little bit different. There is going to be a cycle that you're going to see. For the next 12 to 13 chapters of signs and discourses. Signs and discourses. Now, a discourse is just, in general, is just a meaningful conversation with either individuals or groups of people. And sometimes it is followed and mingled with John's own commentary of what's going on. And remember a sign. A sign's not an end to itself. Miracles are non-miracles. Signs do not have to be miracles. We'll see today that one of them's not. But a sign is not an end in itself. It's meant to point to something greater. And in the Gospel of John, it authenticates the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so from chapter 2 to the end of chapter 12, this is Jesus' public ministry. That's going to be our focus. And so remember the story, and it will go into today's Jesus' ministry was inaugurated by John the Baptist. Remember, he baptized him. The Holy Spirit came and remained on him. Jesus now, in chapter 2, goes to a wedding in Cana where his family was present. It it appears to be that that Mary, his mother, this is one of two times we see her come up in the Gospel of John, had some responsibility. For when the wine ran out, she came to her oldest son, Joseph is not in the picture here. He's presumed already has has died. This was serious. The wedding, um, especially the feast, was the groom's family's responsibility. This was an honor-shame culture. This was no small deal. A lawsuit could ensue. This was a crisis. Mary asked Jesus, her older son, to fix it. And he responded with a respectful rebuke. Why are you bothering with this with me? Why are you bothering me with this? My my hour has not yet come. Mary unwaveringly told the servants, just do what he says, and they did. We remember Jesus told the servants to go get the pots they used for ceremonial washing and fill them to the brim with water. Then he commanded them to draw it out and serve it to the master of the feast. And we know what happens, the water 
was turned to wine. The master of the feast said, you usually serve the best first, but you save the best for last. John gives us the information. This first sign was done to reveal God's glory and his disciples believed in him. And then he goes to Capernaum. Capernaum would be the base camp for Jesus in his, in his public ministry. But he only stayed there a few days. He goes on to the Passover. This is one of three Passovers that is in the Gospel of John. Every Jewish man was required to go. They would, they would either have to bring a sacrifice or they would have to buy a sacrifice there. The center of Passover was not only Jerusalem, but remember we've talked about how important the temple was. It was the temple complex itself. The religious authorities had developed a very clever, convenient marketing strategy to maximize profit and make it easy for people to, to exchange their money, to exchange their currency, and to buy sacrifices. They simply moved all the buying, selling, and currency exchange into the temple complex itself, into what they called the court of the Gentiles. Apparently this was working very good for them. But when Jesus came in, what happened? Jesus got angry. He made a, a whip and began to beat and, and turn over and cleanse. And he said, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. When his disciples were <laughs> taking a look at what was happening, they remembered in Psalms where David said, the zeal for my father's house consumes me. The Pharisees came up to him and wanted to see a sign. What they were asking was, I want to see some kind of authority. By what authority you do these things, give us some kind of sign. He said, destroy this temple and I will raise it up in three days. But you see, they didn't understand because Jesus spoke of his body. After Jesus' resurrection, the disciples would remember what he said. And so, our main idea today, that is chapters 2 Jesus' ministry begins by first displaying the power as the Christ, demonstrating his passion for his Father's glory, and by giving a promise. Let's pray together. Lord, we have heard just a brief summary of our passage today, and Lord, we thank you for it already. We thank you of how you are setting the stage for next week conversation with a man named Nicodemus, a religious man, and yet a lost man. And so grant us the wisdom today to understand these two signs, to understand how the new is better than the old, and to be moved to a life of worship as a result. Grant to us that sits here, grant those who watch now, the clarity of mind and spirit to understand the truth of your word and be radically changed by it in Jesus' name. Amen. So look, if you've got your notes, if not, there's some on the table back there. First point, Jesus displays his power as the Christ. The Christ, the Messiah. The first sign is about old water and new wine. Old water and new wine. We see the crisis, verse 3 and 4 of John Chapter 2, when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. So 
What can we learn from this interesting conversation between, listen, this is important, Jesus the man, the grown man, and his mother? In our day, this seems rude. This, you, we wouldn't call, you call somebody a woman around my house, is something bad going to happen, right? <laughs> this is ma'am or madam, but this is not an enduring term for one's mother. He calls her this here and also at the cross. This expression, listen, this is important, is, a, is at the minimum a measured rebuke. Why are you troubling with this with me? Why, why are you bringing this to me? My hour has not yet come. Remember the hour. This is the reason why Jesus came. Remember we said before, Jesus came to die. The pinnacle of human history. He became sin for us. Carried our sin, our shame. This was pointing to the cross. My time to be lifted up, as we're going to see in chapter 3, has not yet come. Four times in this gospel, we would see that something says the hour has not yet come. They wanted to lay their hands on him, but his hour had not yet come. You want to, you can flip over to chapter 12, sort of the end of getting toward the end of this section. John 12 and verse 23, we see something changes. Jesus answered them, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. We will see this in a couple weeks, that this lifting up to be glorified is in two stages, first to the cross and then to the throne. But the cross comes first. So in Jesus' life, and listen, brothers and sisters, so in yours. But what can we learn from this little piece right here? We can learn something about the priority of Jesus. Yes, we could spend time right here understanding how things should change when a young woman or a young man becomes a man and the way we see them as parents changes and the way they see themselves must change. But it seems very clear here. Jesus is saying this. Don't tell me what to do in my earthly ministry. Mama don't call the shots anymore. Don't. He's a man now. His earthly ministry has begun. He has a single minded focus and devotion to accomplish his father's will. And parents isn't this our desire for our children. Single mind devotion. Not to us. But to him. He was. Brothers and sisters perfect child verse 5 Mary is unflinched we can see even Mary's faith here she simply tells the servants do whatever he says see this is important especially in today's time what's going on if Jesus would have listened to man's desires then or today he would have filled their bellies, healed their diseases, overthrown the wrongs, and then all humanity would have died and went to hell. And brothers and sisters, that is not love. He was in obedience to his father. And so we see the sign of the old water and the new wine. The old water is the law. The new wine is the gospel. The key to this text is, well, this sign is verse 6 to 8. Look at it. Now, there was six stones jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 to 30 gallons. Verse 7, Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. So, 
We need to be clear today, us as old Baptists who are so scared to talk about things like this that we take, we, we jerk this passage out of context. No, brothers and sisters, they did not have bad water in that day. Their water was probably cleaner than ours. This is not unfermented grape juice. The Jewish people knew nothing of unfermented grape juice. This was wine. This was wine. This was a special drink reserved for special occasions. This was a celebration. The Jews saw wine as a gift from God. Listen today, this is important. You can't understand this sign unless you say this is new wine. Don't explain it away. This is wine. And this is a picture of the gospel. There was old water, you see. These old water were put in these jars. You see, the audience that was reading this wouldn't have understood it any more than we do what was in these jars. And so he tells us these jars were for the purification. I read it last night until I got tired. I praised the Lord for the gospel and closed up the Mishnah. As, as we begin to look and sit going, how they had to wash their hands a certain way and so many times. It is detailed. This was part of their life as Jewish people. These had 150 gallons or so of water meant to wash people's hands before they could celebrate here. Jesus said, fill them to the brim with water. What was he saying? The time of the ceremonial observance and all these rituals of the Jewish law have passed. They have been filled. They have been fulfilled. Something new. A new order is being inaugurated. That's what he's doing here. The old covenant of Judaism, the ceremonial purification for water, ultimately failed to cleanse people of their sin. It washed their hands, but it could not change their natures. Took new wine to do that. The new wine. Filled it up. Turn with me to Isaiah 25. You've got to know this passage there again. I know I'm saying this a lot because, because it's so important. The greater you understand your Old Testament, the more you will enjoy your New Testament. The greater you will understand your Old Testament, the more beholding you can do of your Messiah. Isaiah 25, this was the Messianic age, the Messianic kingdom that they looked forward to. A time of celebration. This is why Jesus did this sign at a wedding. Look at verse 6. Isaiah 25, verse 6. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, a rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces and the reproach of His people. He will take away from the earth. The Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God, and we have waited for Him that He might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for Him. Let us be glad and rejoice in this salvation. This, brothers and sisters, is the new wine that all of the Old Testament pointed to. The Messiah is coming, and when He does, He's going to make all things new. 
This wine was wine that was in abundance. 150 gallons of the finest quality wine was served. Verse 10, back in John, excuse me, in John 2. And Jesus and, and said to him, everyone, verse 10, everyone, this is the master of the feast talking, everyone who serves the good wine first, and then when the people have drunk freely, then the poor wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. And so when the servants drew it up, the word draws like pulling it up out of a well. When they drew it up and served it, the servants knew full well that what went in those pots was water. And what came out was not. A good quote here. Quote, Jesus changes the water of Judaism into the wine of Christianity. The water of Christlessness into the wine of the richness and the fullness of eternal life in Christ. The water of the law into the wine of the gospel. This was the purpose of this first sign. Mary simply wanted the situation to end without an embarrassment. And Jesus was saying, my father's doing something greater. This is the beginning of the messianic age. And when the new comes, turn with me to Luke 5. It is not sufficient to have a new gospel. Everything must be new. Luke 5, there's a parable. You remember, one was a garment, one was wineskin. I'm, I'm teeing you up, brothers and sisters. Here's what I'm doing this week. I'm teeing you up for John 3, all through this thing. So we can swing that thing home next week. Verse 36, Luke 5. And he told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it into an old garment. If he does, he will, he will tear the new. And the piece from the new will not match the old. Verse 37. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skin. And it will be spilled. And the skin will be destroyed. Something new has to happen to the people of this new community. What was the response? Every sign has a response. Every gospel message has a response. Every time you speak to anybody about gospel, they respond. Verse 11, we see both the purpose and the response. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did in Cana in Galilee, and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. And so we see this belief that is beginning within this new community to grow in depth as the roots begin to take root and permeate down. How about your response today? Have you tasted the new wine? Let us be reminded of the passage Micah has just read to us. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone. Behold, the new has come. This is the new. What we are right now is new. And listen, what we are looking forward to is new as well. Brothers and sisters, I'm just being honest. There's far too much talk of end times looking at something other than the new heaven and the new earth. What we are looking forward to is what Jesus looked forward to. Mark 14, 25, truly, truly, I say to you, 
I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day I drink it anew in the kingdom of God. Revelation 19 looks forward to what we call the wedding feast of the Lamb. A time of celebration when Isaiah 25 will be completely fulfilled. Visibly. Jesus revealed His glory through displaying His power. And now what we see is, is He heads to the Passover. Jesus demonstrates at the Passover His passion for His Father's glory. You see, the first sign is about old water and new wine. The second sign is about an old temple and a new temple. We have a little transition here. We can see it in verse 12 and 13. It says, After this he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. At some point, it seems that the whole family actually moves to Capernaum. This would be his base camp of operation during his public ministry. As we said before, there are three Passovers recorded in the Gospel of John, and this is the first. It dates at about AD 28, when Jesus would have went to Jerusalem for the first, this first Passover that he celebrated, that we have record of. The old temple and the angry Jesus. The old temple. And a furious Jesus. Let's read it. Look at verse 14. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. Verse 15. And making a whip of cords, he drove them out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, Take these things away and do not make my father's house a house of trade. And we asked ourselves, Can Jesus do that? This little Jesus in our pictures holding a lamb with a smile and grin on his face. Can he, can he do that? He did that. <laughs> That's a really helpful, just theological point. Don't ask the question, can Jesus, God, do something? Just read your Bible and see what He's done. Because what He's done, He's done. And it's perfect. And if we don't understand it, it's our problem. Jesus was angry. So, here's the question. If God is love, how can Jesus be angry? So, this is important. Genuine love is compatible with righteous anger. In fact, genuine love is sometimes demonstrated by anger. Oftentimes, anger proves love is authentic. And if you did not get angry at times, your love would be proved to be what we're going to call at the end, counterfeit. Can I just be honest with you as your pastor about two things that makes me angry? righteously angry when I go into a gas station and I see people buying lottery tickets I do not get angry because they're buying the tickets I get mad because there is people who are keeping making poor people poor by taking the little that they have in a system that people call the poor man's tax I get angry over a system that does that intentionally and puts it and praise on people who can barely pay their power bill in the hope they can get something for nothing. That makes me angry. 
It makes me angry when casinos come and traffics women in prostitution. It makes me angry and it should make you angry. Because if we truly love people, that which preys on them should make us angry. And if not, we need to ask ourselves if we are of the faith. One guy says it this way, spineless love is hardly love. Jesus loved His Father's glory and authentic worship, and so He was angry. Two reasons for His anger. First, notice where the, all this buying and selling was happening. You remember where it was happening? We said it in the story. Anybody remember? Where was it happening in the temple? The court of the Gentiles. Where was the only place Gentiles could worship? The court of the Gentiles. So exactly where was the Gentiles supposed to worship? Number one reason why it made Jesus angry. It's nowhere for the Gentiles who wanted to worship Yahweh to worship Yahweh. Where they would normally worship, the animals were using the bathroom on the temple floor. That's why he was angry. The Father's plan included the enfolding of the Gentiles. And at this point, this was the only place under penalty of death that they could come and worship. Their lust for money and profit had interfered with the worship of the one true God and Jesus was angry. Number two, this created a, what one person called a carnival-like atmosphere. It would be like us holding church today at the Cleveland County Fair, Right? Like, how exactly are we all supposed to concentrate? Right? With all that going around, all the noise. Imagine we're down there near the, where the animals are, right? The smells, all oh, the smells. I have chickens now. Go in there to clean those chickens out, you're reminded. That's what the temple smelled like. Worshippers would come for it. There's nothing wrong with having money changers. You had to exchange your currency to buy the animals. There's nothing wrong with buying animals. You needed to buy animals. People would travel a long distance. The animal had to be perfect. They couldn't make the distance. They had to buy animals. That wasn't the problem. The problem was the temple was supposed to be a place of brokenness and contrition, of adoration and meditation. And now it was just noisy commerce of animals baying and... The smells and the sounds, the religious leaders made it. Listen, it's important for our context today. The religious leaders made it convenient and profitable, but they were robbing the Father of His glory. You see, it's ultimately not about your worship. It's about His glory. Ken Hughes gave us something to think about. The way we worship Reveals what we think about God. (laughs) The way we worship reveals what we think about God. Now we just all need to write that down and go home and think about it. The old temple, you see, had to be cleansed. Ultimately, it had to be replaced. The temple started in 20 B.C., finished in 63 A.D. Who knows what happened in 70 A.D.? Seven years later, destroyed. Not one rock upon another. Jesus said it was going to happen. That's exactly what happened. This was the temple that they were in. 
Jesus' cleansing testified to his concern with pure worship and its relationship to the relationship of God and his people. One was an indication of the other. Jesus came into a temple and saw an atmosphere, a culture that was about comfortable religion and financial gain. And he made him angry. And I wonder, brothers and sisters, how angry he would be if he came into most churches in America today. The new temple is going to replace the old. John 2.17, we see this quote. His disciples remembered, it was written, a zeal for your house will consume me. Now when you see this in, the, in God's words, you need to say, okay, hold on a second. Where's that at? You've got a good study Bible, it'll tell you. And then don't just flip back there and read the passage. You need to flip back and read the whole section. So turn with me to Psalm 69. That's what the disciples are remembering. And this Psalm 69 has a context. Just want to read a, a section of it. Context is everything. If you want to know the meaning of what he's doing here, we've got to understand this quote. There was a reason why they called this to mind. Psalm 69, verse 7. For it is, this is, this is a lament, David. For it is for your sakes that I have borne reproach, that dishonor has covered my face. I have become a stranger to my brothers, an alien to my mother's sons. For zeal for your house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. Do you see the context? This is pointing to the suffering servant. This non-miraculous sign anticipates the suffering of Jesus Christ on the cross. And this suffering, this death and resurrection would bring with it a new temple. Christ Himself. See, this response brings a promise. A promise to this new community. Look at verse 18. We see the Pharisees' response when they see this. They said, what signs do you do to show us for doing these things? That's a curious response, isn't it? Why didn't they say, dude, you've went completely loco. Right? Because... There was a character about Jesus and there was a nature about His cleansing that demonstrated His authority. And they wanted to know, where does your authority come from? There was intrinsic natural authority in what He was doing and they knew it. They said, give us some kind of sign. What was Jesus' response? Look at verse 19. He said, destroy this temple in three days, I will raise it up. I'm not going to give you a sign. I'll give you a sign. And he, he did. He just told him that. John chapter 10. John chapter 10, verse 18. Jesus says this about his life. No one takes it from me. But I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down. And I have authority to take it up again. Listen to what he's saying. This charge I received 
from my father. My father gave me this authority. He gave me the authority to lay it down. And three days later, he's going to give me the authority to take it back up again. And that will be your son. They didn't understand it. Matter of fact, we'll see in a minute that disciples didn't understand it then either. The temple and Jesus' body. John gives everybody an explanation. The original readers wouldn't have naturally maybe understood what he was saying either. Verse 21, it says, But he was speaking about the temple of his body. His body. This word became flesh. This Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. This temple would be the ultimate sacrifice. Would lay it down freely and pick it up by his own sovereign authority three days later. Matthew 12, 6 says that Jesus says this, I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. The disciples respond two times in this passage. Once in verse 17. Remember when they saw him cleansing the temple, they remembered Psalm 69. It says they remembered it was written. And then verse 22, we see another response that's going to come after. It says, when therefore he was raised from the dead, the disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus has spoken. What is your response? And I pray this message gets to every person that needs to hear this. Because this is one of the most important things I've said lately. Our response today, we must ask ourselves the question, is my worship driven by convenience or commitment? Is my worship, not talking about somebody else today, we're talking about Stephen. We've got to ask ourselves, is my worship driven by convenience or commitment? I'm sure the temple authorities would have sit around at their staff meetings and said, well, we're just trying to be relevant. We're trying to be seeker sensitive, you see. And this just makes it convenient. All the time deceiving themselves that the reason they really do it is for their own financial gain. But they made it convenient. You simply one-stop shop. Just come in the temple. You can buy everything you need right here. By making it easy... By focusing on convenience, they had impacted the people's ability to worship their God in spirit and in truth. And listen, that is a non-negotiable in God's eyes. Worship is about contriteness, not convenience. And listen today. What is sometimes needful must never become normative. This is keeping every preacher up at night as we're getting used to staying in our pajamas and going to church. That is not church. What is needful now is for us to be cautious. But we must not, we must not let what is needful become normative in our life. We do not live life on a vacation, but we need to take one. Amen? I'm about to take one myself. And I need it. (laughs) But we don't... Give our kids some kind of glorified Disneyland they live in because they do not live in Disneyland. 
And we must not get used to something because it might be necessary and make it a normal part of our life. Psalms 27, 4. One thing I have asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in His temple. He is the temple and we carry the temples around with us and we are commanded to gather those temples together and worship Him in spirit. And in truth, this is not optional in the Christian life. We cannot, brothers and sisters, and we must not treat worship like calling in takeout, driving up to the curb and have somebody handing it to us so that we can get on with our life. That is not worship and neither is it Christianity. Jesus did not go to the cross to give us a comfortable Christianity, but to give us a finished one. Listen. The judgment of God came on the people of God because of such hypocritical worship. And we delude ourselves in America if we think the same cannot happen to us. We must repent as the church and worship our God in spirit and in truth. He is worthy of that glory. His Father is worthy that it would consume us as it consumed Christ. So what? So what? I want you to change the word if you're taking notes. I printed this off Thursday and I spent a lot more time on the passage since then. So if you're taking notes, here's the question. Does my life, I had and right there, change that to of. There's not life and worship. There's only a life of worship. Does my life of worship reflect an authentic faith or a counterfeit faith? This is not my question. This is one of the realities of expositional preaching. This is simply where John landed the plane. (laughs) Turn with me to verses 23 and 24. What this is, brothers and sisters, verses 23 to 25 actually, is is a closing. He is landing the plane on the signs, and he is getting ready to take the plane off in a conversation with a man named Nicodemus. Verse 23. Now, when he was in Jerusalem... At the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all peoples and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. It's an important question today. Am I trusting in Christ? Or am I just just trusting in what Christ gives me? You want to sign you're in a defective relationship? I can give you an easy one. Are you in a relationship for what others bring to the table? Then your relationship is a counterfeit. We do not love people for what they bring to the table. We love them. We set our affections on them. Can I ask you a question? Exactly what do you bring to the table that God, to a God that needs nothing? Something to think about, brothers and sisters. We do not set our love on other people because they bring something to us. We set our love on people because Christ set His love on me. Period. That's the gospel, brothers and sisters. That's what the life of worship looks like. And if it doesn't, then we're just trusting in the sign 
and not in the one who did the sign. And Jesus, look at this, Jesus will have nothing of it. We oftentimes are deceived by what we might call posers or counterfeits, but Jesus never is. J.I. Packer said it's the difference between knowledge of someone and knowledge about someone. Quote, the width of our knowledge about Jesus is no gauge of the depth of our knowledge of Jesus. Yes, you might know about my wife, but you do not know her. I do. What supremely matters, quote, quoting Packer, what supremely matters is not that I know God, but the fact that he knows me. We are going to respond now with two songs. Now listen to me. I want you to respond with me rightly today. Praise team is going to come in just a minute. They're going to sing two songs. The first song is called New Wine. I want you to stay in your seats. And I want you to worship the Lord, the whole song. I want you to listen to the words. And I want you to respond. This song is going to call for a response today. And I want us to worship the Lord. And I want us to commit to Him through this song. And then we're going to sing a song about the finished work of Christ. And then I'm going to invite you to respond by going to the tables. To celebrate communion. To respond in giving. And then come back to your seats and worship the Lord. So let's pray together. Lord, now... This is such a privilege, God. I think about those Gentiles that used to have to worship in the outer courts. That was us. But oh God, you sent your son and he tore that veil in two and he replaced the temple with himself. And now, God, we can come to you right now through prayer. And right now through worship. Because it's finished. Oh, God, when others dip into the well of my life, I want them to taste you, God. I don't want them to taste the world. I don't want that to be the legacy of my life and I don't believe any of us do. Oh God. Do a new thing in us. May we behold the gospel today as if we have never heard it before. May we leave this place to live a life of worship. And oh God, I call those who need to repent to repentance today who have become comfortable in a comfortable Christianity that does not exist. Thank you for the gospel. Thank you that Jesus loved those people enough to cleanse the temple. And thank you for the, that he loved us enough to become it. Oh God. Receive the worship of your people now. 
Oh God, hear our prayers of repentance. Because we don't deserve to sing to you. We don't deserve to come to the tables. But because of who your son is, he has given us a privilege. Sonship. We're children. We thank you, God. We adore you for the fact that we, as Christians, are the children of God. And nothing and no person could ever change it. Oh God, you be honored and glorified now as we sing to you and we commit our lives to you and for your glory. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Stand with us as we sing.